This is KMTT, and this is Espec. Today is Asara B'Tezet, Yom Tzom, the day on which Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city of Yerushalayim, which led eventually to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and the city. Today's Shi'ur is the second in the series on Issues in Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages, which I will be giving. The shiur is 32 minutes, starting immediately. Last week, in the introduction to the course in Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages, I uh, presented a number of possible attitudes basically against studying Jewish philosophy basically against investigating the logical basis for faith. We're going to put that behind us. We're going to examine the different texts and different opinions of faith in the great thinkers of the Middle Ages, assuming, for the next couple of weeks, that we think it's a valuable enterprise. The beginning of nearly all discussions of Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages begins with the truths of the existence of God. While in the the uh, rest of the course, I don't plan to restrict myself to what is properly called philosophy in the sense that that word had in the Middle Ages, meaning that which can be proven for much of Jewish thought and much of Jewish machshava uh, and uh, hashkafa in the Middle Ages would not fall into that category. But the beginning of our discussion will be, in fact, a purely philosophic topic the belief that one can present a proof, a logical and a logically compelling proof for the existence of God. I want to say at the outset that this has fallen out of style in the modern world for the last 300 years. Basically, of all the truths presented during the Middle Ages, both in Jewish and non-Jewish uh, sources, it's generally believed that Immanuel Kant uh, disproved all of them, overthrew the variability to uh, present a logical proof for the existence of God. There is some controversy about this point, but nonetheless that is the generally held opinion. When we examine the proofs, we will first of all examine them as the Middle Ages and the philosophers of the Middle Ages believed they could be understood. But I also wish to try to understand the meaning and relevance and value of the truths, of the endeavor to prove, even in a world such as ours, where most people will not consider the truths to have actual evidential value. They will not actually prove that God exists. But nonetheless, I think we can still learn a great deal both from the attempt as well as from the actual conclusions of the medieval proofs. There are basically three attitudes I think that one could have towards having a proof for the existence of God. The first would be that of the Rambam. The Rambam is an unusual case here, although the Rambam's influence is enormous in the Middle Ages. But the Rambam's need for a proof of God is essential. 
Because for the Rambam, the basic relationship that one can have with God is one of knowledge. And knowledge for the Rambam is the knowledge that one attains from the truth. In other words, if you could not prove that God exists, for the Rambam that would mean you do not have a genuine relationship with God at all. Therefore, the proof of the existence of God for the Rambam is not a preliminary to the religious life, but is the actual content. It's the essential content of any religious life. It's the goal of religious life. To know God is what you exist for. It's the meaning of being human. And to know God means to have a logical and rational proof of His existence. Of course, in, in modern philosophy, there isn't a proof of anything. Of existence. One cannot prove that anything exists. And there's very little that one can prove in general in modern philosophy. But for the Rambam, the model was the Greek model. Something more or less on the level of Greek geometry. Aristotle believed that all natural laws could be proven. They had logical validity. And the culmination and the highest development of that rational endeavor, of the ability of man to truly understand, to rationally grasp his environment and existence and reality, was his ability to know, to know God. Meaning, first of all, that God exists, as well as other possible things that one can know about God. For the Rambam, there are three things that one can know about God. One can know, one knows that He exists, one knows that He is one, and one knows that He does not have a body, that He is not a body, He is not embodied. So that's one possibility. Namely, that the proof of God is the central goal of religious life. Another possibility, exemplified by Rabbeinu Bachya in Sefer Chobat HaRavavot and in a somewhat different matter by Rabchaste Kreskas in Sefer Or Hashem sees the proof of God not as the contents of the relationship with God but as a basis for a connection and a relationship with God. You have to know God in order to have a relationship with Him. The relationship does not consist only or even primarily of knowledge. But you can't have a relationship with something you do not know. This is apparent even by looking at the structure, for instance, of Sefer Chobat HaRavavot by Rabbeinu Bachya. Sefer Chobat HaRavavot has ten sha'arim, ten gates, ten steps. The first one is called Shah Hayichud and consists primarily of a proof of the existence of God. It's the first of ten gates. The last gate, skipping rather quickly, if you'll excuse me, to the end of the book, the last gate is Shah Avat Hashem, the gate of the love of God. Clearly for Ben Obachya, the genuine relationship with God consists of love. The first step to loving God is to know that He exists 
And to know that he exists in Abachia means to know in a rational, philosophic manner. It's an interesting uh, side, historical side. Sefer Chobat Ravavot has a certain popularity in, uh, in Yeshiva circles. However, they skip the first child. On the basis of advice of certain Gdolin, who very much admired Rabbeinu Bachir's both style and contents, the nonetheless suggested that you start the book from the second Shara. You skip the pure philosophical parts. Rabbeinu Bachir has many, many moralistic parts. He talks about human characteristics, about the feeling of dependency upon God, the feeling of trust in God, the feeling of love of God. Those are great parts. Skip the first part. Rabbeinu Bachir himself says that that's impossible. He says you can't do that. He says it explicitly in the beginning of Shara Yichud. If you don't go through Shara Yichud, you cannot get to the other Shavim. That's of course explicit in the meaning of Shavim. These are gates. You have to enter the outer gate before you can enter the inner gate. However, in comparison to the Rambam, where if there were a Shara Yichud, it would be the last of your gates, then Ravachia is only the first. So philosophy, knowing God, is an essential prerequisite to having a true relationship with him. But philosophy is not the content. It's not the goal. It's not the, the body. And it's not identical with true religion. The same thing is true, although in a different manner, we'll get to this somewhat later, and uh, not today, in uh, the greatest of all Jewish philosophers after the Rambam, in Matras who also presents a proof to the existence of God in the very, very beginning of the of his work, of the positive side of his work, after he criticizes at length, at tremendous length, the Rambam's truth, he nonetheless suggests the proof of his own, and then proceeds to show why the proof itself is insufficient, not wrong, but insufficient, as one has to add things which one cannot prove. Specifically, the knowledge that God is truly one. The very, very next step in the Rambam's truth, as Chastai says, here already the proof has, has fallen. The name of Rav Chastai's book is called Or Hashem, and Or Hashem means, Rav Chastai, the light of revelation, the light of prophecy. Because without that light, you don't really have much of a connection with God. But philosophy provides the, the vessel, the container, into which one can pour the Or, the or Hashem. There is a third use of the truth of God, which today is probably more popular than that among philosophers. And that is, the use of the proof of God in order to still doubt, in order to refute heretics, in order to convince somebody who does not believe in God that he should believe in God. This has a very small place, at least explicitly, in uh, the literature in the Middle Ages. For one reason, there were very few heretics around. There were heretics who actually doubted the existence of God. There were all sorts of people who have arguments with you about the tenets of your belief, but people who didn't believe in God were, in fact, a verity. And uh, secondly, it, it wasn't the purpose of the books they were writing to address, to address that question. There's an interesting uh, section in the beginning of a book written by Ananjou, written by Anselm of Canterbury, uh, who was a Christian. And he has a proof to the existence of God, which in fact is not found in any, in any, Jewish, uh, in any Jewish source. Uh, before he begins his proof, he prays to God. He says, God, please help me, grant me the wisdom and the assistance I need to prove your existence. And after he finishes his proof, he thanks Christ says, thank you so much for helping me prove your existence. Uh, I think he was aware of the paradox involved in praying to God 
to help us prove that he exists. But nonetheless, what Anselm is really saying is that he knows God exists. He believes in God. He's not proving God in order to convince himself that God exists, but he needs to prove for other, for other reasons. And what I'd like to do in the remaining time today is to examine quickly two uh, medieval proofs for the existence of God in order to understand the difference, not the logical difference, but the difference in results, the different implications it has. In order to illustrate a secondary point altogether, not what purpose the proof has in your philosophy, but what are the implications that arise because one has a particular proof or not. The Raman's proof to the existence of God, in brief, goes more or less as follows. Everything that moves has to have a cause. This is an Aristotelian precept. The Raman lays out as an axiom of thought that every effect has a cause. So, if something moves, there must be a cause of its motion. The cause of its motion is itself something in motion. This is true both logically, because there cannot be in an effect more than there is in the cause, and therefore the, the, the cause of motion is itself motion. It also is more or less true in our, uh, in our experience. You might think of cases where it's not true. For instance, magnets cause motion. Uh, the Greeks were so convinced, or Aristotle was so convinced, that only motion could cause motion, that he had a motion explanation for magnetism. It's not our job now to criticize the truth, but merely to try to understand it. That which causes motion is something else in motion. For instance, a billiard ball that is moving across the table has gotten its motion by being hit by another billiard ball, which itself was in motion. But, says the Rambam, it is impossible to have an infinitely regressive chain of causes. In other words, if every effect of motion is caused by a cause of motion, then that cause itself is an effect, and what caused its motion must be a previous cause, which also has to be in motion, and therefore it requires a cause. But this sets aside an infinitely regressive chain. But if you have an infinitely regressive chain, how did you get to the point you are today? If point A, where we are now, is caused by point B, which is a previous cause, because the cause must always precede the effect. But B is caused by C, and C is caused by D, and D is caused by E, and E is caused by F. How do you keep on going forever? How do you ever get to A? And therefore, there must be a first cause of motion, which is not itself in motion and therefore is not itself caused. It's not an effect that requires an explanation, and that is what we call the unmoved mover, or the uncaused cause. In other words, that is what we call God. Now, the Raman's truth is not the only truth the Raman presents, but his, his second proof is not all that different. The Raman's truth which like any modern thinker is being somewhat attenuated. Did the Ramam imagine that someone would follow this truth, agree with its logic, and go out and all of a sudden become a believer after he had not believed in God beforehand? Believe in what? Is in fact our religion, our relationship with God, based on the belief in the unmoved move? Well, not mine, not yours. And it would be hard to say that 
that is the God who exists and acts throughout the Tanakh, who acts in Halakha, and the Rambam knew that. The Rambam explicitly distinguishes all the time between the truths of the Torah and the truths of Emunah, the truths of the Torah and the truths of belief, knowledge, faith, in other words, philosophy. Again, the Rambam didn't present this truth to convince the non-believers. He presented this truth to give us a handle on knowing something. Knowing that there's something which has a different relationship to everything else in the world than all individual things. Everything else is in a chain of causation. The Rambam says many times that one can conceive of the world as being each echad, the chubar. Everything is connected to everything. It's what we call today nature. The system of nature is such where everything is in relationship to everything else as a cause and as an effect. But there is one thing the Rambam says, which we call God, that is outside that chain. Everything else is a effect related to his cause, to its cause, but it is not caused by anything else. And that, says the Rambam, is what we mean by God, and he has proven its existence. Let's leave the proof aside for a moment. The Rambam objects strenuously to an alternative proof, which he attributes to the Islamic uh, school called the Mutakalam, the Kalam. But in fact, the Rambam is aware he just doesn't wish to use his name, that this is the truth of the Sajidah. And it's a truth based on creation. The Rambam says, I don't wish, nor do I think it's correct, to prove the existence of God on the basis of creation. The unmoved mover didn't necessarily create the other things, but he causes them to move. The Sajidah had a truth based on creation. We see the world exists, the world must have come from somewhere, Therefore, it must be created, therefore, there must be a creator. The creator is himself not created, and therefore, you have God. This is probably close to what many people, the kind of people who sell God on street corners, would probably present. I think that's what most children, more or less, would say is their belief in God. Like, where did the world come from? Who made it? I'm not going to discuss why the Rambam objects to the logic of the proof of the Kalam and of the Sajidah. But I want to point out the difference in the significance of the proof. Anyone learning the Rambam's proof is immediately struck by how seemingly irrelevant it is to what most of us think is the contents of religious life. Does one pray to the unmoved mover? Not likely. Aristotle, who had an unmoved mover, didn't pray. Does one have faith that he will help you? No particular reason. Does one attribute to him the fact that the rain fell yesterday? Does one hope that tomorrow he will redeem the Jewish people? None of those things follow from the Rambam's truth. What does follow from the Rambam's truth is that one can know that there is something metaphysically different on a totally different level than everything else I know. On the other hand, 
But Sajigon's truth, by definition, does not speak of God as being radically and totally different than everything else in the world. The relationship of God to the world as the Creator is not totally different than the relationship of, of a carpenter to a chair. It's true that the Sajigon also speaks of that God created the world out of nothing, which is indeed a something which we have no other example for. But the, 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 the logical step of imputing God's existence and the fact that if something exists, it has to come from somewhere, someone must have made it, that logical step is taking some of our experience in the world. And therefore, the Sajidon loses what to them apparently is a crucial point. The proof, not necessarily the belief, but the proof that God is totally different, wholly other than the things that we are familiar with. On the other hand, and this is almost the same point, on the other side of the room, the Sajidon proof gives rise to a whole range of actual relations between God and man. If God made the whole world, then you're indebted to Him for everything you have. Your life, your possessions, the air you breathe, all that comes from God. He gave that to you. The Raman is famously not interested in having a relationship, a, a relative ability to measure God to man. But of course, if you're interested in devising how one should react, then the Sajigon's proof is much closer to the contents of our actual religious life. Specifically, in the Sajigon's case, the Sajigon draws the conclusion that the basic attitude that man has to God, the basic religious value that derives from this truth, is that of gratitude. And the Sajigon views gratitude as the basic religious attitude. Obviously, if God has made everything, then you are indebted to Him and you must be grateful to Him. On this, the Sajigon explains that's why we have to observe Mitzvot, because we owe God. Part of our being grateful to Him is to do whatever He asks. And He develops this in a number of other areas as well. The basic religious attitude that would derive from the Vandam's truth it's not an emotion, it's not gratitude, it's not a moral value. But the life and the Raman's truth is, is knowledge. Not a moral value, but an intellectual one. And although both the Raman and the Sajigon will supplement the truth with other kinds of, of, of true things that are taught by the Torah, but here we find an additional value and importance of the truth in Jewish philosophy. They don't merely prove that God exists, but they set the stage for where do you go from there on. The Rambam proves God in a certain way and then proceeds to say that the value in my life, what the Torah wants of me, what, what existence demands of me, is to know God. And to know God is to understand the truth that the Rambam gave. Now, Sajidon proves God in a certain way and then proceeds to say that what the Torah demands of me, what logic demands of me, what philosophy demands of me, is to be grateful and indebted to God who has done infinitely amount of things for me and for the rest of mankind. This is a, is a, is a crucial point in understanding the truth. 
by a theory intellectual point of view, or history of philosophy point of view, we would now take the proofs apart, proofs for good and effort. I'm assuming in advance that these proofs are not true. That if you do not wish to accept the conclusion, you will be intelligent enough, perhaps with the aid of a Jewish philosopher, like a, a non-Jewish philosopher, like Kant, or the Jewish philosophers, or, or hundreds and hundreds of people have been discussing this for hundreds of years, you'll be able to disprove the proof, to refute the proof. But a far more important point for us is, how does the kind of thinking that went into the proof, give or take a, some technical error, some, some leap of, of, of non-totally proven uh, assumption. But where does the kind of thinking that goes into these proofs lead one in terms of one's relationship? There is an implicit connection between the highly attenuated intellectual proofs of the great Jewish philosophers and the very basic human attitude of what is religious life in future. And the Sajidon is a classic example of someone who is a Jewish philosopher, highly intelligent, very intellectual, but doesn't see the basic attitude, the basic relationship of man to God as being an intellectual one. So the intellectuality of the proof serves as a basis for something else. It serves as a basis for a moral virtue, for an attitude of gratitude, dependence, obedience, a whole slew of values, of religious values, which for a Sadidon derive from his choice of a particular kind of proof to prove God. The Rambam rejects that truth not merely for logical reasons, but also because he doesn't want to base his knowledge of God on how God acts in the world, which would place God as a relative power to myself. He doesn't want me to have as a basic truth that we should be grateful to God in more or less the way we are grateful to the king or our parents or some other provider, perhaps multiplied a million times. The one wants our basic relationship to God to be that which doesn't compare to any other relationship because it's a relationship to that which is totally outside the chain of relations which exists within nature because he's the guarantee of all nature whereas nature has no effect whatsoever and can have no effect whatsoever, whatsoever on him. We will, uh, next week, examine the, the actual logical basis of the Rambam's truth. The Rambam's truth is, is not particularly uh, unique to the Rambam. It's listed more or less wholly, with a few changes, directly from Aristotle. It has a number of variations which took place in the Middle Ages among Jews, such as the Rambam, among Muslims, and among Christians. The truth is called, in its largest collection of variations, the cosmological proof of God. So the word cosmological means that the truth is based on the existence of the whole world and not on any particular feature of it. I don't prove God because there's a tree outside of my house which defies my other kinds of explanation. I don't prove God because yesterday some miracle took place and I can't possibly explain it, and therefore God must have acted. But I prove God because of basic features of existence. In this case, one I mentioned 
briefly beforehand, the fact that there is motion, there is change. And if there's change, there must be something which causes the change. But a cause of change is itself a change, and therefore, etc. the infinite regressive chain we spoke about. I will, as an exception, next week, uh, in fact, uh, reach out beyond the text of the medieval Jewish philosophers, because the discussion of this kind of cosmological truth will clarify uh, what the Ramam is looking for, and therefore we will deal this one time, um, it will happen often, we will deal this one time with uh, historically discussions of the cosmological truth, many of which took place beyond the period we're discussing in the Middle Ages, and also beyond the uh, social group that, was, that we're speaking about. They won't only be Jews. As a uh, aside, I would like to point out, the Lama would not be shocked by that at all. Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages, or this Aristotelian Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages, is not inherently a, a, a only Jewish occupation. I think there is always a Jewish input. The Ramam has, has, a, has a obligation and a commitment to understanding these philosophic ideas within the context of the Torah. But nonetheless, as the Ramam understands philosophy, it's logic. And logic derives from human reason and not from human revelation, not because God spoke to Moses, but because reason can grasp these things, and reason belongs to all men. And therefore, it wouldn't shock the Raman at all, it doesn't shock the Raman at all, that uh, he, in effect, is having a discussion with non-Jews. The Raman quotes liberally from uh, Islamic philosophers who were his sources to his knowledge of Aristotle, and uh, Christian philosophers uh, cite the Raman and uh, discuss it. This the discussion of the cosmological proof is, in fact, not purely, I'm saying not purely, a, a, a Jewish discussion. And the proof of the Satyagon is also not a Jewish discussion, but it, 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 it achieves a much greater degree of absorption within the context of Jewish thought because it immediately leads us to asking the question, well, what has God done for us? And then Jewish history begins to enter into the question. God has created the whole world, true, but He's created other things since then. He's manipulating and controlling Jewish destiny in a manner which in fact is different than others. And so the, the passage from a general proof based on creation to a particular proof based on, for instance, the exodus from Egypt or God's continued confidence over the Jewish people is a natural one for uh, a president that kind of passage when it takes place in, in, in the Ramah. Uh, the very term I use, cosmological proof, is not found in Jewish philosophy. It's a term in general philosophy uh, used by Christian, uh, uh, later Christian uh, philosophers in the late Middle Ages um, when they classified the different kinds of proofs used. It nonetheless is the classic Jewish proof in the Spanish era, in the era after the Rambam, uh, in one version or another. It's not necessarily in exactly the Rambam's version, as I pointed out, the Chatech Reskas rejects the Rambam's version, but then proceeds to give another one which you'd have to pay very careful attention to see and notice the difference. Uh, we're going to end on this point. Next week we will begin by examining the Rambam's truth internally. I will compare it to another famous truth, not found in Jewish sources in the Middle Ages as a proof of God, but the argument is found for other purposes, was known in classical philosophical terminology as the teleological proof of God, which is found in the Sefer Kuzari, it's found even in the Rambam, but not for this purpose, 
I would like to know why. We will compare the two and understand, as we did today, what are the consequences, what is the significance of using a certain proof and how does it affect the continued uh, belief development, how does it affect my attitude, how does it affect my relationship, basically, the important religious question, how does my use of a particular proof affect my relationship with God. You have been listening to the second shiur in the series on issues in Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages. So today is Halakha Yomit. We will discuss one more issue having to do with the day, the fast day, Yom Hatzom, Asara B'Tevet. We have two different kinds of fasts in the Jewish year. One is Tisha B'Av. We all understand that Tisha B'Av is a day of mourning. And there are many halachot in Tisha B'Av that are specifically laws of mourning, such as sitting on the floor, uh, not uh, saying hello, not saying shalom to other people. Many halachot of Tisha B'Av directly parallel halachot of Avilut of mourning. All of which comes under the general uh, 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 title, the general heading phrased in the Mishnah in Mesechatanit, Mishnah Nechnas Av, Mema'atim B'Simchat, in the very beginning of Av, not just on Tisha B'Av, but very from Oshchodesh Av, one lessens Simcha till there is full-fledged Avilut on Tisha B'Av. Another psalm is Yom Kippur. There is no sadness on Yom Kippur. On the contrary, it's a thrill to be sad on Yom Kippur. A mourner, an avel, who comes to Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur ends his availability just like other holidays end availability. There is, in fact, a machloket, a dispute among the Tanaim whether that's true, but we rule, we paskin, like the opinion in the Mishnah that says that both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur end availability because the very day of Yom Kippur is a contradiction to mourning, to Avilut. It's a Yom Simcha. It's a serious day, a very serious day. There is a psychological problem how one could be in a state of judgment, in a state of din, at the same time in a state of happiness. We'll have to work that out when we get closer to Yom Kippur, but it's not a day of mourning. Fasting accompanies both of those days because fasting is connected to tshuva, to repentance. Yom Kippur is a day of repentance, as well as Tisha B'Av is also a day of repentance. The act of mourning is itself a cause for reflection and repentance and tshuva and coming closer to God. What about the other psalmot? What about the one of which is Asara B'Tevet, Psalm Gedaliah, Shiva Sa'abat Hamuz? Do they have the aspect of mourning? Instinctively, we tend to think they do because we know the reason for the fact that these days are fast days are occurrences, historical occurrences, which are connected with the destruction of Yerushalayim and the Temple. Just as Tisha B'Av is a day of major mourning, there is feeling that Asarab Tezet, the day on which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, laid siege to Jerusalem, an act which would lead, after months, to the fall of the city and the destruction of the Temple, so we're dealing with the beginning of the destruction of the Temple, and we fast on this day, but it seems right there should be some measure of mourning on this day. In point of fact, one cannot find a source for this feeling. And 
In fact, Tashtot in two places, and it's also quoted by the Mordechai, and other sources, having all of which are Ashkenazi sources, mention a case where there was a chupa on a Sarabatevet. They don't question the fact that there was a chupa. They have another question, how one does a suda, when you eat, when you don't eat. But the fact that there was a chupa, that they celebrated a wedding on a Sarabatevet, is, is an assumed fact in the beginning of this particular story. Some poskim, when they read the story, couldn't believe it could possibly be, and so they suggested an emendation of the text. That perhaps it's a mistake, it shouldn't be chupa, it wasn't a wedding on Asrabatevet, it was a brit niva. If a baby's born on the eighth day to his birth in Asrabatevet, of course you do the brit, and then Tosfer asks about the suda, the meal which uh, had to take place. But since it's found in more than one source, and, and one source quotes another source, it seems quite clear that in fact uh, it really was a chupa, and Tosfer didn't think there was anything strange when having a chupa on Asrabatevet. Other poskim, Rabbah Kili, the Mubah Shishiva, Vishvat Haratzeon, Shomei Tshuva, in Ravadi Yosef, where he also assumes, as a matter of, a simple matter, that of course, Asrabatevet is a day of mourning, not deep mourning, but some sense of mourning, and therefore he tries to argue that perhaps, since obviously at this Chupa they didn't have a festive meal, there was no Suda, the Suda was in its own was over at the end of the day. So just having the wedding without the meal perhaps is not that great a level of simcha, and since the fast day is not that great a level of mourning, a contradiction did not ensue, although in principle, obviously you can't be both happy and sad at the same time, but halakhically, since the, the, the necessity to mourn is not that great a necessity as opposed to Tisha B'Av, and the amount of rejoicing you're doing is not that great without a Sudah, so perhaps one was able to accomplish both on the same day. In other words, in principle, there is a contradiction, but Allah Chalamaisa, uh, certain forms of minor forms of celebration, and he tried to demonstrate that a Chatunah without the meal would not be that great a form of celebration, perhaps would not contradict the uh, mourning that does take place on a Sabbath day. This all derives from a, a, a discussion which already arises in the Gemara and later on in the Poskim, not everyone has a wedding, but suppose you get married three or four days before a fast day. Chatan has seven brachot for seven days. Those are also days of rejoicing. That could easily uh, contradict, uh, come into some sort of conflict with a day of mourning, including uh, the beginning of Cholish Al, for instance, or according to Awamin where we start the morning in Av, very from Shiva Sabbat Tammuz, but one could get married a day before Shiva Sabbat Tammuz, and then we would have Shabbat And the post can discuss what happens when my private Simcha meets the public and national uh, morning, and uh, you could work out some sort of a, uh, of a uh, Shabbat, a compromise between them. A simple Nachkamin would be if someone, for instance, was married on, on Zion Tevet, uh, two days ago, three days ago, he has Shabbat Our meaning is that a Chatan comes to Shul, you don't say Tachman. So one would, would one not say Tachman on Asara B'Tezet? Today's morning, so you shouldn't say Tachman. I mean, he maybe has a Simcha. What about us? Do we all rejoice in his rejoicing when we also, so to speak, mourning to Asara B'Tezet? So the post can discuss this, and uh, one should obviously try to avoid, one doesn't, we, no, nobody would schedule a wedding on a fast day today, and if the wedding was beforehand, uh, there is a kind of conflict, uh, the different post-skin, as to, for instance, this 
particular shayla do you say tachnun or not? I just want to point out that I'm not 100% sure that in fact the assumption is correct. There is no source that says there is mourning on Aserah uh, Tevet. It's an assumption without a basis, without a proof. I think it's conceivable that although the reason for the establishment of these days was that these were days of disaster, but today we are not recreating for ourselves the action to the disaster. Days of historical disaster are caused for retrospection and introspection and soul-searching. In other words, the days of tshuva. But that halachically there should be mourning on this day, I'm not 100% sure that it's true. It still might appear to be inappropriate to have a wedding on a day when you're doing tshuva, but every chatan does tshuva on a day of his wedding. Uh, but perhaps the seriousness is also some sort of contradiction to the simcha of a chatan. Nonetheless, uh, it would require a great deal more uh, searching and checking before one could actually prove that a day like a Sabbath date is a day of even minor mourning. Nonetheless, it is more or less accepted by the Paskin that, at least in principle, even if there are no halachic manifestations, positive manifestations, they don't do anything that involves mourning, but that the general state of the day should include a measure of sadness as well as tshuva. No question that the most important part is the tshuva, and therefore, Allah one avoids uh, happy, happy expressions on, on the Tanit, like a Salvatore a question I still ask was whether you could listen to happy music. Uh, I don't know anywhere in the Peskin where it says that it's a sure, but there's this feeling among the Peskin that it might be, it might be inappropriate. That's it for today. Tomorrow's Shiyul, Wednesday, will be given by Rastavori uh, on the weekly mitzvah, the mitzvah for Pashat Vayechi. Till then, Kol Tuv, Nidushetzion, this is KMTT, Kimitzion, Tetzay Torah, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.